and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Diana Perkins, Professor of Psychiatry and Director of OASIS, Outreach and Support Intervention Services at the UNC School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and Dr. Martha Sjadovic, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. They will be discussing the functional and social impact of tardive dyskinesia on the lives of patients. This episode is part of a larger program titled Tardive Dyskinesia Across Psychiatric Disorders. For more information on Dr. Perkins and Dr. Sajadovic, along with links to other tardive dyskinesia programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what these experts have to say about this important topic. So hi, Diana. It's really a pleasure for us to be here again today talking about uh, one of our favorite topics, TD. Really look forward to our discussion. I'm delighted to to be here and to be discussing this kind of underappreciated area of the importance of dyskinetic movements in people's um, everyday lives. So we're going to be talking today about tardive dyskinesia, also called TD. So TD is a condition that's often irreversible typically associated with the use of dopamine-blocking drugs, and most often used in people who have serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The symptoms are involuntary. They tend to uh, fluctuate in severity, may be present at one moment or not, and can be influenced by a variety of things, including stress. Um, TD mostly occurs in the facial region, particularly perioral but can occur in all parts of the body, including the trunk or the extremities, and can range from mild to uh, more severe and have a range of um, impacts on functioning and quality of life, which we will hopefully get into and be talking a little bit about. But Diana, I I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit and uh, maybe start off with asking you a question that you might want to share your input on uh, with our listeners. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the key domains of functioning that are likely to be impacted by TB. So tardive dyskinesia can be disfiguring. It can be hard to actually watch a person who's got involuntary movements, um, especially in their face. And so, so that a lot of the consequences just fall from the fact that it's, it is disfiguring and that can make other people uncomfortable. So you'll have these social consequences that other people may avoid looking, making eye contact at the, the person because of the disfiguring uh, or unusual movements. And that, of course, has consequences for jobs, for uh, just abilities to, to interact. Um, so for, for any kind of you know, social or vocational functioning, having anything that's disfiguring is, is um, going, going to sort of impact your ability to relate to other people. The other aspect is that the person often has a lack of awareness of the involuntary movements. It's one of the things that's relatively unique to tardive dyskinesia. And so the person themselves may not understand or even be able to, to, it may be hard to adapt to other people's reactions and to interpret what other people's reactions to them. Um, and that can impact psychological functioning. You know, why is this person not engaging with me or is turning away? Uh, and, and of course, a person with schizophrenia may have explanations that involve paranoia. But in fact, this may actually be a real thing that's happening to, to anyone who has a, a disfiguring problem. 
I'm not sure what your experiences are with the tardiskinesia, but I found patients are often very distressed about how others are reacting to them. I think those are all good points. And um, you've remarked on that kind of social disfigurement. And I think that's really important because it leads to a whole host of downstream reactions to the person. I would just mention, you know, you talked about kind of vocational and sort of physical things as well. So in addition to that kind of social element, it seems like it could really also cause some functional impairment. If, for example, the hands are affected, a person may have difficulty even eating. So it can it can affect all kinds of, of physical functioning um, if the movements themselves are severe enough. So the impact is not just the social part, but also just the movements themselves. And um, a person's ability to use their arms, if their trunk is involved, you know, just the ability to do even activities of daily living can be significantly impacted. Um, so it can really impact a person's ability to function independently at, at its more severe forms. Right. Or even just interacting. I, I very well remember a patient of mine who used to buy all of her tops with pockets, with deep pockets in the front. So she could stick her hands in the pockets so her hands wouldn't move around and be um, so distracting to people that she was talking with or interacting with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, I think those are the ways that we can work with patients to help them cope with uh, this kinetic movements. But when it affects the face, and, and of course, as you mentioned, that's the most common place for it to start is the oral facial movements, tongue protrusions. Those are difficult to, to adapt to and can be quite distressing for family members and, um, of course, for the, the person themselves. I guess the other thing I would just say as a lead up in response to your comments, Diana, is that people who have tardive dyskinesia usually, in most cases, have a serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And you could very easily imagine, and certainly we've seen it in clinical settings, that when you add stigma burden onto that or social isolation, that it could worsen their underlying psychiatric condition as well. Yeah. Self-stigma is such an issue with persons who have schizophrenia and the issues on how the person values themselves and their ability to function in the world is, you know, it's very much tied into their ability to function, to integrate with the community. Those are key concepts in a person-centered concept of recovery. So tardive dyskinesia, even when the symptoms themselves of psychosis are, are in remission, which often happens, um, the stigma is still there when you have an abnormal involuntary movement disorder, that self-stigma concept of self-worth. Great. Very good. We were talking about a little bit about how TD can affect function, but, but, but how do you see the impact on the quality of life for a person with, who has tardive dyskinesia? Well, that's a great question, Diana, and I think I can speak to it both as a clinical researcher from both ends. I mean, certainly as a clinician, I often see uh, the impact on quality of life, if you, as you've mentioned, in the social domain, in the physical domain, in the vocational domain, and then the psychological or psychiatric domains. And certainly, it can be a big deal. But there's also a body of literature that talks about the association between quality of life and tardive dyskinesia. I happened to be reading a, a recent paper by um, Dr. Joe McAvoy. Benjamin Carroll was the last author, and it was a lovely uh, report in the Quality of Life Research published in 2019 for those who are interested in looking at it. But in that analysis, they did this cross-sectional study where they looked at 
um, a couple hundred people with serious mental illness who had TD compared to those who did not have TD and found there were really significant health-related quality of life between those two. And perhaps in somewhat of a contrast to what we just talked about a couple of minutes ago is that the physical domains uh, were also significantly different. So worse TD was associated with worse quality of life, so the more severe, and that, that kind of makes intuitive sense and what we what we certainly see in the clinical domain, but physical you know, functioning can be impaired. So even though TD typically and often occurs in the face and facial regions, it also can occur in the whole body. And certainly we know that somebody's emotional state can also affect their, their physical functioning. So even things like staying inside and being socially isolated and not going out to exercise or walk is just going to make people more prone to developing complications when they do go out. The research data supports the very close association between both the presence of tardive dyskinesia, the severity of tardive dyskinesia, and moreover, what domains of life TD. I like how you mentioned how stress um, and anxiety impact the severity of tardive dyskinesia, because we see that clinically, right? When a person's can be sitting there, have relatively mild symptoms, but then uh, the stressors of either the topic we're talking about or you know, engaging in, or a person's thinking about being out amongst other people. And just with that increase in anxiety, you get significant increase in the severity of the movement. So the severity that you might see in an office setting or in a place where there's you know, very low stress may not really reflect what's going on in that person as that person is trying to go out and about and engage with others. Um, So these normal day-to-day stressors can make a big impact on the severity. It may in fact be part of why a person will socially isolate is because they recognize that how those two things are related. Well, I I think that that point about the recognition is so important. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because there is a, a thought in clinicians, and I've certainly heard it mentioned, uh, you know, I work with a lot of trainees and do uh, speaking and go out and speak with groups of clinicians, but sometimes there's this idea that we don't need to worry that much about TD because patients are not aware of it and not bothered by it. And I think the data really kind of refutes that, that people may not be aware of what's moving and when it's moving all the time, but they certainly are, are often keenly aware of the repercussions or complications of TD. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, a person could be having the facial movements and not be aware at that moment that the movements that they're having, but they are definitely aware of the consequences, how other people are reacting to them. And that's a confusing, I mean, that, that's inherently a, you know, just a confusing, I mean, I, I try to put myself in my patient's shoes when that's happening and to just imagine here you are struggling to understand your illness and part of that is misinterpreting how other people are relating to you and differentiating between, yeah, this is something that's that people are reacting to your movements. You may not be at that moment aware that you, you, you started to make them, but they, in fact, but you are aware of other people's reactions and thinking about awareness and on two different levels. As you say, you got your patient who was was aware of it, that that she had these abnormal movements in her arms and was trying to make efforts to control them. I think that's you know a great example about how there's awareness on two different levels. Maybe not at that moment, but definitely that this is a problem. Right, that kind of interface of subjective and objective, and people can be aware of both elements. 
Um, well, let's, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. And I, I have a question I'd like to ask you, Diana, and that is, um, how should clinicians assess for the impact of TD on the social and functional domains? So what would be a good way to evaluate that in a way that would be most helpful? That, that's a great question. I mean, you think that on one level, clinicians, we know that we should be assessing for dyskinetic movements, you know, in our clinical evaluation. I'm not sure that, so, so that's not exactly what you're asking, but, but I think that's sort of the preamble to it is, yeah, that we do need to be assessing regularly for dyskinetic movements. In clinical settings, the severity of dyskinetic movements isn't the same as, as it may have been 30 years ago when we were using antipsychotics, maybe dosing them um, more liberally than we are now, and maybe, and for whatever reasons though, that that it is less common to see that very severe um, level of dyskinetic movements, but more mild movements are not that unusual. So those still, those still exist. I see them in clinical settings. And so to be um, at least aware of, as part of your routine evaluations, to be assessing for these movements is, is important, but also to be looking for the consequences of the movements. And so, because in that clinical setting, the movements may be less obvious. You know, if a person is feeling comfortable with you, they're, they're meeting with you, you may not be able to detect them on, on your evaluation in, in the office, but it doesn't mean that they aren't affecting the person. So I think that's part of it is asking family members, asking others about the presence of these, of any, any movements, any tics, any kind of facial um, you know, changes in your facial muscles, puckering, to be asking about those to people that are observing the person in all these different settings is, can be very helpful in detecting TD, especially in the earlier stages. And I think that the second piece, though, is when you see a person who does have these dyskinetic movements, to be talking to them about, about the fact that they have the movements and to be discussing with them how it may be impacting their life. And it's especially that, that line between misinterpreting how other people are reacting to them and versus, yes, that these movements are impacting how your, your boss, your friends, other people are interacting with you um, and asking them about that. When a person says you're making some funny movements, you know, well, what is that? What is that about? And um, so when a person, you do see a person kind of reacting to, when the patient sees a person reacting to them in a, in a way that's you know, kind of saying, well, there's something wrong to be asking that friend or family member about what they're reacting to, to be doing the reality check. Um, and then beginning to understand, is the movement itself impacting their relationships with their friends, um, with, with their families? So those are, you know, that's, you're talking about the more mild spectrum. That's kind of what I'm focusing on now. But, and, but I think there's also when it becomes more severe, you know, it's just absolutely critical to understand, especially um, as you say, just the, how the movements themselves interact uh, or affect a person's ability to do tasks that are important, either in their job. You know, for example, a person who's got this hand movements may not be able to write anymore, may not be able to type on a keyboard. It may make it more difficult for them to to you know interact with their um, their their phone or or you know so under so so going through what activities have they started to give up and why is that part of the dyskinetic movements that's impacting their ability to interact with others across both media domains as, you know, social media or, or email, as well as in, in person. Yeah. So I think those are really great. I mean, you know, thinking about looking at 
is the TD there? Yes or no, sort of presence or, or not presence. And you pointed out the excellent point that you want to use all available information. So family or friends or other people that are involved in, in that, you know, your patient's care to get that additional input. We know TD is not necessarily constant and it varies. So is it there? Yes or no. The severity, um, which ties into the next issue of functional impact. So what kinds of things have you, you know, not done? So that is really just a lovely summary. Uh, I remember having a discussion with one of my patients who had been on antipsychotic medications for a while and was developing some dyskinetic movements. And when I tried to assess that and sort of gently have that discussion with her, um, she insisted that it, it it couldn't possibly be TD, but it was because she was Italian that she was just <laughs> moving her hands around. <laughs> so, and really, only only when uh, we had a discussion about well, what kinds of things are you not doing as much, uh, you know, because of these movements, or you know, not going to the hair salon because she was uh, concerned that people would be asking her about these movements and she didn't want to talk about her mental health condition. So, um, that discussion of of functionality uh, certainly is is a way to assess TD. Yeah, I, I was thinking of a, of a young man who, who was fairly early in the course of illness, but was starting to develop some oral facial dyskinetic movements. And he was, you know, was, these are days when, you know, COVID days, and he was not, you know, doing school remotely. And um, other people were, were laughing, you know, as he was trying to, you know, sitting there and talking. And he, he stopped showing himself on the, the video as part of the class because he just felt so uncomfortable that he didn't know why other people were, you know, he would see the facial expressions from, from his you know, fellow students. And it was, it was just very uncomfortable for him. And I could see him starting to pull back from doing other things that involved any kind of uh, video interactions. And I almost wonder if it's more obvious in the video interactions when you're just sort of sitting there and looking at a person's face than in other in in-person settings where I think we can be a little bit more forgiving. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. And you know, the Zoom era where you know we're certainly just focused on just one part of the body. And, you know, so that maybe it, it might have a I haven't seen any research on that uh, topic specifically, but it certainly would be interesting. So I'm just wondering about, you know, how we think we can help patients when we're, you know, as we're doing these assessments for the potential impact of TD on, on social and um, vocational function. Um, I'm just sort of wondering how, you know, how is that going to actually help our patients uh, move forward? So assessment's one piece of it. Yeah, so I think that's a, a great question, and it sort of is a follow-through on the discussion that we've had so far. So being able to identify TD, looking at the effect, effects on quality of life and functioning in a variety of domains uh, is certainly important. And then uh, ideally, it will inform treatment planning, and ideally, that will be a, a shared decision-making process where the clinician can have a discussion with her or his patients and you know, really talk about what are our options. We, we just uh, fortunately had the American Psychiatric Association uh, come out recently. I think it was a 2021 publications uh, with APA about treatment guidelines or practice guidelines for the care of individuals with schizophrenia. And uh, what is so dramatically different in the, in the new guidelines is that we actually have treatments for TD that are more efficacious than what we've had in the past. So 
I think that's probably kind of the main thing is, should we think about treatments? Um, I mean, certainly these are due to, to dopamine blocking drugs. So we want to consider that in the, the mix, you know, um, can we look at causal agents? Can we make changes to that? That certainly is, is worthy of discussion. Is the person, you know, do they want, is it cumbersome or burdensome enough that they want to have a treatment? And that's, you know, adding another drug or, or making changes to treatment regimen is something that the person who has the illness is going to be living with a while. And so they need to have, have buy-in. But being able to minimize or treat symptoms can have profound impact on a person's quality of life, on their functional status, on their self-esteem. In my own personal clinical practice, I uh, practice predominantly geropsychiatry. So I see I see older people, and as you know, older people are both more prone to developing TD, and when they have TD, it can progress in severity and functional impact relatively quickly. And and I've seen that treatment of TD using that shared decision making model can actually um, minimize some of the, um, the complications. So older people are prone to having falls. And when they fall, they're likely to have bad stuff happen to them, like break a hip or subdural hematoma. And, you know, you can <laughs> sort of think about all the things we've seen. Uh, but it can have an impact on their ability to live independently, to uh, walk with them and assist their device, and certainly to re reduce their fall risk. So that's just one functional domain, but it's really compelling reason to, to have that important discussion about having the assessment inform a subsequent care plan. Absolutely. I mean, we, especially in, a, in people who are older and already are having, for other reasons, problems with their balance, problems with mobility, that the, the intervention is absolutely critical. You know, fall prevention is, is so important. I like the idea of shared decision-making, but part of the issues with dyskinetic movements is that it, it can be relatively mild. It takes work for the person to understand that, that this movement, that they may not be aware of at that moment, they are aware of the functional impact. So part of that shared decision-making discussion is on that these are emerging and that they can be progressive. In fact, they're often progressive. Now we, we do have interventions that can actually treat dyskinetic movements, which is just, which is just wonderful. But, you know, the earlier you, you do these interventions, the more likely the response is better. And I, um, that's just sort of like a general principle. If you let things go, if you let this deterioration go, you know, you're going to have just not only the, the progression that's happening in the brain is happening, but also the impact on the person's life. And that, you know, people begin to have these, you know, adaptive reactions to the impact that TD has, but those can be difficult to unlearn. Yeah. And if they're in a social environment where, you know, they've got the same people around them, it can be very difficult to, to change things. I, I, I think that's very true. And the shared decision-making is so important. So these, if they go on a, a pharmacologic treatment for, for TD, more than likely they're going to need to stay on that as long as they're on the antipsychotics, if the clinician is unable to take them off of the antipsychotics. So it is a, a an important buy-in, you know, adherence is something that I've done research on for decades and taking any medication, no matter what it is, more, more medication is generally harder to stick with than take. And you have to have that agreement right from the get-go. Right. And the shared decision-making though is, is less on the movements themselves, but more on the functional impact of the movements. That's where the person is, you know, I think that's of course the main reason why we're interested in it. 
for most people, the movements themselves aren't the main problem. They're not experiencing it as, a, as painful or unnecessarily even unpleasant, but the functional impact can be a big deal. So that's where the shared decision-making you know, focus, I think, is on, I see that you're having these movements. Let's talk about the impact that they're having on your life. And that can help us understand what we need to, to do to potentially intervene kind of approach. Right. And I, I certainly have had patients once they've gotten treatment and their um, tardic movements are, are better, they, they will appreciate it saying, well, I didn't even realize, you know, how much of an, of an impact it was having. So sometimes just after the fact, that will become more obvious to the person. And, and that actually can help with adherence as well. Absolutely. That they're now in a social setting and people are, they're able to enjoy it more. People are um, not reacting to the disfiguring movements, but instead really able to engage with them. And even if they're in a, in a setting, you know, that's some kind of care setting that can still happen with other people that are in the setting and with staff, right? Staff also are going to be reacting to people that are in care settings and will be reacting to the person who has the abnormal movements and it can, it can get in the way of the, the care staff and the other people in the setting of actually seeing that person instead of seeing them as their movement disorder. Right, right. I agree. Well, Diana, it's always a real pleasure to speak with you and get a chance to kind of bounce around some of these topics. I enjoyed it as well. And again, I don't treat geriatric patients. When you brought that up, I was thinking, yeah, that's probably true that in that setting that you're, you probably see way more dyskinetic movements than, than I see in these younger patients because my focus is really on earlier course illness. And I do still see dyskinetic movements and I do see, see them emerge more subtly. So, but I can see the importance, especially in individuals who already are, you know, are struggling for all kinds of reasons that are just related to geriatric, you know, just, just what happens to all of us as we get, or can happen as we get older. Yeah. That it's a, um, it's absolutely critical to be thinking about the functional impact in, in those settings and how, how absolutely critical that can be for that person's quality of life. I really, I appreciate learning that from you. I had not been thinking about it in that way. And I think it's really something that I hope individuals who are treating patients, especially primary care providers can be really focusing on that, that the dyskinetic movements, how are the dyskinetic movements impacting you know, my patient's quality of life and, and their enjoyment of of you know day-to-day -day life and their ability to function, their ability to participate in activities. That's that's really absolutely, absolutely critical. So thank you for that. Thank you very much, Dr. Perkins and Dr. Sajadovic, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on tardive dyskinesia, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>